good to see you all this morning. Uh, it is great to be in God's house. Good to be back with you. I had a good spring break with my kids uh, and my, especially my daughter and I went off on a trip together. Will and, and, and Carrie stayed home because that's what they wanted to do. And so everybody was happy. It was a good time. It is good to be back though. And it's always good to be with you. And today we're looking at John 14. John 14, six specifically, we're gonna look at verses one through six. In my opinion, this is the, the most famous of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. It's the one just about everybody knows. And so we're gonna look at what Jesus was saying. It's important to know, like with every part of scripture, what is the context? What was happening when Jesus said this? Jesus is specifically speaking to his best friends in a time of grief. And most of us have been through this if you haven't yet, you will be someday where there's someone close to you who has suffered a loss, someone close to you who is going through real difficult times. Uh, a loved one has passed away. They've gotten a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe, maybe they've been caring for a loved one for a long, long time and they've reached the end of their rope. They lost their job or something else has happened and your job is to comfort them. And here's what I've learned in, in, from, from the experience of many attempts to comfort. The less you say, the better. See, oftentimes we go in there and we think, okay, I'm gonna say something that is just gonna, it's gonna sum everything up for them and it's gonna make everything okay and you can't do it. In fact, the harder you try to say that perfect thing, that super profound statement that's gonna make everything come back into line for them, the more you're going to hurt the situation. So it's not about what you say, it's about the fact that you're there and you're there for them. Now, Jesus is different. Jesus knows what to say. Guess what? You and I aren't Jesus. He is. And in this situation, he is speaking to his 12 best friends less than 24 hours before they're going to have the worst day of their lives. We often think about how difficult Good Friday was for Jesus, and it was, but it was, it was difficult for them too. They had left behind their families, their friends, their jobs, their hometowns to follow this man. They'd been with him for three years. They thought he was going to be the one who brought Israel back to prominence and prosperity. And over the next several hours, they were going to see him betrayed by one of their own, arrested, found guilty by the leaders of their own people, men they admired, then handed over to the Romans, tortured and killed in the most humiliating and painful way possible. This was going to be awful for them. And so Jesus is trying to speak to them words of comfort, words of perspective, so that they will not lose hope. And here's what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So what Jesus was doing was giving them something to hold on to. One of the things about grief that you'll learn, grief feels like you've lost everything you have that matters. It feels like you've got nothing, no stability left, no, no solid rock. Everything you counted on is gone and you wonder, is there even a reason to go on? Is there even a possibility that life will ever be happy for me again? Some of you know that. Some of you are going through that right now. 
And in that process of grief, Jesus says, here's three things you can count on. A place, a promise, and a person. He says, first of all, there's this place. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And by the way, when he says to prepare a place, we all know that Jesus was a carpenter, but this is not him saying, I'm gonna go somewhere and I'm gonna build you something. He's saying, I'm going to Calvary. I'm going to Golgotha. I'm going to the cross. And that's where I'm gonna prepare a place for you. I'm gonna make sure there is room for you in the kingdom by dying for your sins. And he says, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, when I grew up, most people read from the King James Version of the Bible. And in the King James Version, that reads very differently. In the King James, it says, in my father's house, there are many, some of you can say it, and there are many what? Mansions, right? Okay. Now, the problem with that translation, and I'm not trying to criticize the men who translated the King James 500 years ago, because they did an outstanding job. But 500 years ago in the English language, the word mansion didn't mean a big, huge estate with a massive yard that you've got to hire other people to cut for you and, and rooms that you'll never use. Mansion just meant a place to stay. So Jesus, you have to remember, is not speaking in 21st century America. He's speaking in first century Israel, where family was everything, where most people lived in a one or two room house, but if God was really good to you and you had more kids than you counted on, you didn't sell the kids at the local corner store. No, you built onto your house. Whatever it took, you and your family would get together and you'd gather all the materials and you'd add on another room for all these kids God had given, God had given you. So this is Jesus simply saying, my dad is gonna make room for you. Don't worry. I'm, a, I'm the son of a rich man. You're an orphan child. There's room for you in my father's house and I'm gonna make sure that you've got a place when you get there. And I'm going to the cross to make sure of that. Now, when I was a young preacher, just out of, fresh out of seminary, first church, most of the people in the pews still carried the King James Bible. And so I would get a little bit of flack from people when I would read this translation and they'd say, hey man, I heard you say rooms. My Bible says mansions. Don't be taking my mansion away from me. I mean, I've been counting on that. And these were good people. They were, they were godly saints and, and people I loved. And, and I didn't know what to say to them because I was 26 years old and, and I, you know, they were twice my age, if not more. And so looking back on it, if I could go back in time, here's what I would say to them. And here's what I say to you because some of you are probably having the same thought. Listen, I don't know everything there is to know about the world we go to when we die in Jesus. I know a lot more about what happens when Christ returns but in the meantime, that in-between time before the new earth, I don't know a lot of details. Here's what I do know. Jesus owns everything. He's got unlimited resources. He can get you anything you need, anything you want. He loves you enough to die for you. It cost him everything to make a place for you in heaven. Knowing all of those things, do you really think there is any chance that when you get there, there's gonna be one, even a tiny part of you that says, eh, I wish it was different. <laughs> no, there is not. There is no chance you'll be disappointed. You'll be blown away. Whatever you expect of that place, your expectations will be exceeded. He has gone to the cross to prepare a place for you. That's his first promise. That's something the world can't take away. Secondly, he gives us a promise. The promise is, I will come again and take you to myself. See, there's this, there's this old word from Jesus's day. The language Jesus spoke was Aramaic. The word in Aramaic is Maranatha, which means Lord come, Lord come. 
And it's what the Christians of the first century used to pray. That first and second generation used to say it all the time, Maranatha, Lord, come. Because what they were saying was, I'm glad I have you. Because I have you, this world is worth living in. This life is worth living, thanks to you. But if you want to come back today, if you want to come back today and take me out of this world and to that next world, I'm ready. I'm game. I'm with you. Come quickly. And it seems to me that Christians today don't say that very often. Christians today aren't putting their hope in the return of Christ like we once did. Our hope is in other things. Our hope is in, okay, Lord, please give me that promotion. Oh, Lord, please let my kid make the team. Oh, Lord, please bring me that person into my life that I'll fall in love with and we'll live happily ever after. Lord, my hope is in these things. And it's part of the reason why we're so disappointed. Our hope If our hope is in Christ and the return of Christ, we will not be disappointed because it will happen. Maybe not as quickly as we want it to, but it will happen and we will be overjoyed. I think it's a real good way to test your spiritual temperature. It's just to ask yourself the question, when you hear about the return of Jesus, what is your gut level emotional response to that? I'm not saying, you know, anybody can raise a hand and shout hallelujah. But what do you really think? Because if there's a part of you that says, you know, Jesus, come, but not yet, because I haven't experienced these things yet, then that means you're still a little too in love with the things of this world. Not a bad person. You just need to grow. If on the other hand, your, your deep gut level emotion is, amen, come Lord Jesus, come today, come, I'm ready whenever you come, whenever you are, that's a good sign. That's the way we ought to be. That's the promise that he gave us, the place and the promise. And then finally, the person. The person was himself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one else says things like this. I read this week something interesting. Another preacher said this, and I'm going to steal it from him. He said, Jesus was the most humble person who ever lived, but he wasn't modest. You see, we usually use those terms as synonyms, but they're not. Humble means I don't think about myself. I don't need to put myself first. I don't need to have the last word. I don't need to get the spotlight. I am happy to serve you. That's humility. And humility is always a good thing. Humility is something we all should strive for more of. Modesty, on the other hand, can be a good thing. Modesty is I don't want to brag. I don't want to call attention to myself. I don't want everybody to be looking at me. But modesty can also be a bad thing. Let me give you an example. If I'm in a public place and I start to have a heart attack and there is a cardiologist in that room, I do not want that person to be modest. I want them to be humble. I want them to say, okay, I'll put down my chip and dip and I'll take care of this guy. But I don't want them to say, you know, I don't want to brag or boast. I don't want people to think that I'm showing off by rescuing this guy who's dying in front of me. So I'll let other people take a crack at him and have their shot. No, I want him to say, get out of the way. This is what I was trained for. I'll take care of this. And that's what Jesus does here. He is humble enough to say, my life is worth nothing if I can't rescue you but he's not modest. He's immodest enough to say, I'm the only way. Don't look at other ways. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. I am the way. On the other hand, anyone who has me has everything he needs. Now, some of you have grown up in church and some of you have been here long enough to realize you just heard three points, right? So you think you just heard a sermon, but you didn't, not today. As they say on TV, But wait, there's more. 
So Jesus said these words to his closest friends in a time of grief, and they still work in those situations for us. But there are three kinds of people today that I believe especially need to hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm gonna tell you about two of them right now and then a third in just a moment. The first is what I call the friendly unbeliever. Friendly unbeliever is a person who does not accept Jesus as divine, does not follow him as Lord, but who admires him, who thinks highly of him. I've had friends in this category who would say, I'm not a Christian, I don't go to church, but I sure do like Jesus. I had one friend tell me, I've, I've read the Sermon on the Mount. If, if the whole world would follow those rules, this world would be a perfect place. He said, Jesus is a moral genius. I just can't believe that he is God. Some of the people in this category, friendly unbelievers, are actually members of other religions, other religious groups, especially Jews and Muslims. I have a cousin-in-law who is a devout Muslim, grew up in Palestine, Palestine not Palestine, that's the one in East Texas. Yeah, <laughs> Palestine, the one in, in Israel, right? Um, and, and he told me once, he said, I believe that Jesus is the most perfect person who ever lived, and I believe he is coming back someday. That's what he learned from the Quran. They don't even believe that about Muhammad. But in my opinion, the largest number of friendly unbelievers are people who would identify themselves as Christians. And many of them are people who grew up in church. Maybe they, maybe they got baptized as infants and went through confirmation, or maybe they, they got saved and got baptized during VBS one year or after youth camp, or maybe, maybe they still go to church. They're there most Sundays. You ask them, what, are, what religious belief are you? Well, I'm a Christian. But when you walk around them and you, and you see the way they live and you get to know them better, you realize they've never experienced new life. Jesus said, to, to come to know me is to be born again. There's been no rebirth in their lives. They haven't changed. They're, Jesus makes no practical difference in the way that they live. They are friendly unbelievers. And I'm not trying to insult. There, I read a book last year uh, that I highly recommend called The Unsaved Christian by a guy named Dean and Sarah. And he talks about this, about how many people just consider themselves Christians because of their lifestyle, because of their culture, because of the family they grew up in, or maybe because they have some religious uh, background. But think about Thomas here in chapter 14. Thomas was a friendly unbeliever at this point in his life. He believed that Jesus was a remarkable person, a prophet, maybe even Messiah. He did not yet believe that he was divine. He wouldn't believe that until that day, a week or so after Easter, when he stood before Jesus and fell to his knees as he saw those nail prints in his hands and his feet. And he said, my Lord and my God. Until then, he was a friendly unbeliever. And so when he says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? What is he expressing there? He's just expressing a practical question. We give Thomas a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas because of that one story in the Bible. But really, he was just a practical man who was saying what the other disciples were thinking. Lord, you say we know the way, but if you told us the way to heaven, I didn't write it down. I hope you'll repeat it for me. And that's when Jesus has to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then we didn't read this part, but the very next thing is Philip says, hey, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. He'd read the book of Exodus and how God made his glory pass before Moses as he hid in the cleft of the rock. And he's saying, give us that same vision. We want to see God. And Jesus says, have you been with me all this time and you don't realize? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one and the same. 
See, these, the disciples, many of them at this point, were still friendly unbelievers. And the thing about a friendly unbeliever is they don't like John 14, 6, because John 14, 6 makes them make a decision. They don't want to do that. They want to be able to say, I admire Jesus. I just don't trust in him yet. You can't do that. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote in his, in his classic book, Mere Christianity. You've probably heard this quote before. He says, I am trying here to prevent... I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he was a madman or worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What Jesus says is you can't just say, I like you. You have to say, I will follow you. Jesus says, I'm not interested in fans. I want followers. I'm not interested in groupies. I want disciples. You either kill me or crown me. It's one or the other, but you must choose. And there are some of you today, perhaps, and I'm not trying to get any, any blood-bought believer in Jesus to doubt his or her salvation. Believe me, I don't get paid anymore if you walk the aisle. That's not what this is about. But I don't want anyone to think, well, because my parents were Christians and because I, I grew up in church and because I still come sometimes and I believe all the right stuff, yeah, I'm saved. Not unless Christ has come in and transformed you. And that can happen today. Now there's a second kind of person that needs to hear this, and that is the anti-religionist. That's my term for a person who says, yeah, unlike the friendly unbeliever, I don't admire Jesus. I mean, there are things about him to admire, but ultimately he started a religion and all religions are really bad. When you get down to it, you think about the acts of terrorism, the wars in the name of religion, all religions. When you, when you think about people who've been uh, molested in churches and by clergymen, when you think about the division in families, the arrogance, the judgmentalism, the hatred, the world would be better off if we just gave up on this idea of religion and God. And when I was a kid and when I was a young adult, anti-religionists were what you found when you went to college campuses. The students and the faculty, some of them were, that, that was their agenda. But outside of a college campus, you mainly, if you saw them at all, they were the, they were the cranks or the weirdos who liked getting attention by complaining about the, uh, the, the manger scene in the town square or the Ten Commandments posted on the wall of the courtroom. They just liked attention. They liked being the, the village atheist. These days, they're mainstream. These days, the anti-religionist is perhaps your favorite singer or movie star. It may be your best friend. It may be your son or grandson. If you're my age or older, I guarantee your kids, if they, don't, if they aren't in this category, they have friends who are. And if you're my age or younger, you know a lot of people who fall into this category. In fact, maybe some of you do. So this is not a rare thing anymore. And when a, an anti-religionist looks at John 14, 6, what they see is, you know, that's the problem with the Bible. They say, that's why I don't like the Bible, because statements like that are so exclusive. 
And that's the problem in the world today. Religion would be okay if everybody didn't have to insist on my way is the only way. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It's so exclusive. I had a friend who said to me this way. He he put it this way. He said, any God who sends people to hell just for believing in the wrong, wrong religion is not worthy of my worship. Any God who sends people to hell just for believing the wrong religion is not worthy of my worship. And I read a story when I was studying for this message that is kind of a good response to that mindset. It's written by a guy named John Yates. I don't know him. He's a pastor. He's a generation older than me. He grew up in our country at a time when polio was the most feared thing on earth. It was the epidemic that everybody was terrified about. Some of you are old enough to remember. Polio was this silent killer. It would come in, and you know, one day your child would be playing on the monkey bars at school. The next day they would be in bed, and they'd never walk again. It was terrifying. John Yates talks about how one day when he was in high school, they called everybody to the school gym and they lined them up and they gave each one of them a sugar cube with this pink syrup on it. And that syrup was a derivative of the Jonas Salk polio vaccine. And they took their medicine and they were inoculated against polio. And Yates says, you know, looking back on that day, there wasn't a single person in that room who stepped out of line and said, hold on, hold on. I refuse to believe this is the only way I can be protected from polio. I want some options, okay? Give me at least three different ways that I can be protected from this disease because I refuse to believe that I have to do what you say in order to be protected. No, everybody, everybody just said, thank God there's finally a way. Thank God that I as a little child don't have to worry that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and never be able to walk again. Thank God that I don't have to worry that my kids are going to get this terrible disease. And so instead of asking God, why did you only make one way to be saved? Praise God that he made a way. He didn't have to. So as I said to my friend when he raised that objection, which I thought was really thoughtful, I said, yeah, but I think you got it all wrong. The Bible does not teach that God is standing up there in heaven saying, okay, who can I leave out? What have you done wrong that I can use to exclude you from heaven? That's not the story of scripture. Story of scripture instead is that God looked down on this earth and saw a broken world and people lost and dying and and headed for eternal separation from him and said, I cannot accept this. I will do what no one ever thought I would do. I will become a man. I will go to the world on a rescue mission that I know will kill me. And in my death, I will open a pathway so that anyone who wants to can be saved. And ever since that day 2,000 years ago, through the form of his Holy Spirit, he has been working around the clock to get as many people through that way as possible. So it's not about a God who's trying his best to exclude people. It's about a God who's trying his best to save everybody he can, everybody who's willing. And my friend said, I I grew up in church. I never heard it presented that way. And I said, my friend, all I can say is I'm sorry because that's the gospel. That is the way, the truth, and the life. There's a third kind of person that needs to hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The friendly unbeliever, the anti-religionist, but also, also the arrogant Christian. Anybody here want to wear that badge? Anybody want to say, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm arrogant. No, probably not. But all of us fall into this category at times because all of us have a tendency to look down on certain groups of people. 
And I'm not just talking about racial prejudice, although that still very much exists and is still very much something we need to, as Christians, war against. But I'm specifically talking about when we look at somebody or we look at groups of people and say, I can't believe they live that way. I can't believe they make those choices. I can't believe they want us to accept the things they do as normal when I know they're wrong. Or people who have different beliefs. I can't believe they follow that God instead of mine. I can't believe they vote for that candidate instead of mine. I can't believe they believe the stuff they believe instead of what I know to be true. And then there are people on the opposite end of the spectrum and some of you might be in this category, and your, your thing is, you can't stand intolerant people. People who are judgmental, people who are self-righteous, they just irritate you, and you've gotten to the point where you can't stand those folks. You look down on those folks, and you know what's ironic? I hate to tell you this, but you've become extremely intolerant yourself. You've become intolerant of the people you find intolerant. Man, isn't life crazy? And then all of us, even if we're not talking about specific groups of people, all of us have individuals we look down on. Let's just admit it. We're in church. There's no reason to lie. There are people who maybe that because they've done something mean to you in the past and you just can't get over it, or maybe because you just find them personally obnoxious. We all have those people that they're like oil and we're like water, and just the sound of their voice is, is nails on a chalkboard. They walk into the room, and we walk out of the room. Somebody brings up their name in conversation, and if someone's looking at you and you're not careful, they can see a look of disgust on your face because that's just someone you can't stand. And we've all been there. We're all there now at, at times. We have people we look down upon, but I've got news for you. John 14, 6 says, it's impossible for someone who truly believes the gospel to ever look down on anyone. The gospel changes that. See, the skeptics and the anti-religionists are right about this. I'll give them this. Religion does make us arrogant. Because when you say to yourself, I have found the way, and only my way is right, you have a tendency to look down on others. When you say, I have found the way to live, and because I live this way, my life is better off, you have a tendency to look down on everybody who doesn't live that way. They're right. Religion does tend to make us more arrogant, but you know what? Atheism does the same thing. Some of the most smug and self-righteous people I know are, are atheists and anti-religionists and agnostics. Truth is, political beliefs do that. The most diehard conservatives I know look down on progressives, and progressives can't stand conservatives and think they're the bane of all human existence. It, it's just an accepted fact. If you have a strongly held belief, it makes you arrogant. Even if, I mean, something as ridiculous as being a, a serious fan of an athletic team can make you arrogant. If you are a baseball fan, of any team other than the Houston Astros, you look down, admit it, you look down on Astros fans like me because in your eyes, we root for a team that cheated its way to a World Series title. And I look down on you because I say, don't you realize the Red Sox and the Yankees were doing the same thing and Major League Baseball won't come after them because they're the Red Sox and the Yankees, right? <laughs> Man, if that's the only amen I get, this is, yeah, but... Okay, but, but let's get real. Several years ago, an Alabama football fan, guy older than me, so old enough to know better, actually went on the campus of Auburn University. Alabama and Auburn are bitter arch rivals. Poisoned the big oak tree on Auburn's campus where the Auburn fans would gather every week when their team won. 
And when he was arrested, they asked him why he did it. His response was, and I quote, I had too much Bama in me. He's not talking about the jelly, okay? So if something as ridiculous as being a fan of an athletic team can make you a jerk, how much more so can religion? How much more so can other, other strongly held belief systems? The one exception is the gospel. The gospel is the only absolute truth claim that destroys the arrogance of all who believe in it. So if you divorce the gospel from Christianity, if you try to practice Christianity without the gospel, it's just another religion. It makes you just as self-righteous and arrogant and, and hateful towards others as any other belief system, but with the gospel, it destroys your arrogance. It destroys your self-righteousness. It destroys your self-justification and any, any desire in you to look down on anybody else because Jesus in the gospel says no one comes to the Father except through what? Through good works? No. Through a righteous lifestyle? No. Through believing the right things? No. He says no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, as much as looks you in the face and says, you can't do it, I must do it for you. You are too sinful, I am righteous enough. You are too weak, I am strong enough. You need me to be saved. And that doesn't change when you've been a Christian 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. It is always, always true. In other words, my political beliefs don't make me better than somebody who votes differently because it takes the same blood of Jesus to redeem both of us. My religion doesn't make me better than people who believe in other religions or no religion at all because it takes the same blood of Jesus to redeem both of us. In fact, I'll just be honest with you. I've lived long enough that I've known people of other faiths and people of no faith at all who I see qualities in them that I wish I had. I wish I was as brave as her. I wish I was as compassionate as him. And he's not even a Christian. It's not the way we live that makes God love us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the blood of Christ that makes us saved. And not only that, it's not any outward righteousness. It's not, it's not uh, abstaining from sin. I'll just testify, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never killed anyone or committed any violent crimes. I, I've never gotten drunk and got behind the wheel of a car. But that doesn't make me better than people who've done any of those three things or all three. Because if God wanted to, he could publicly expose me for all the things I have done. And there's thousands and thousands of ways that I have gone against his will. But he won't do that because it's his intention not to expose me, but to save me. It's his intention not to condemn me, but to rescue me by his atoning death. And that's his plan for you. And that's his plan for them, whoever them might be. See, what it takes is it takes us sticking close to the gospel. The problem we have, the problem we have is that we have a tendency to forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not that if you look down on others, you're not actually saved. It's just that we come to know Christ by grace alone. And then a few weeks in the family and we act like we were born there. We're adopted into God's family and a few weeks later we're looking down on the orphans we used to play in the mud with. We forget the gospel. We start seeing others as fools and enemies when what they really are are lost children like we once were who need to come home. We've got to stay close to the cross. 
We've got to constantly remember the gospel. The gospel isn't just how we get into the family. It's how we live a God-honoring, sanctified, fulfilling, abundant life every day. You've got to remember the gospel every day. You've got to start out at the cross. There was a man I read about recently who was a Christian theologian, but his dad was a committed Marxist. And those two philosophies are very opposed to each other. Marxism teaches that uh, the worker, the poor, need to rise up and overthrow the institutions that keep them down. And they think that religion gets in the way of that because religion tells them, ah, don't worry about it, just wait till heaven. So to a Marxist, religion is the problem. And we hear stories like this often about, uh, you know, one family member being a Christian and another one being a Marxist, but usually it's the opposite. Usually it's the, the mom or the dad that's the Christian and the child who is believing in this new political philosophy that they think is going to rescue everybody. Um, in this case, it was turned on its head. And usually when we hear those stories, it ends badly because the, the parents are so heartbroken and the, and the child is so angry that they end up separating and they just never speak to each other again. But in this case, this, this man, because he stayed close to the cross, he didn't see his father as an enemy. He didn't see his father as a fool. Instead, he said, you know, the reason my dad likes Marxism is actually a good reason. I know he's wrong. I know he can't be right, but he has the right motive. He cares about poor people. And he'd say, dad, Jesus cares about poor people too. He talks about it all through his word. My dad wants to see justice take place on this earth. He wants to see everybody get a fair shake. He thinks it can be found in this political philosophy, but I'm telling you, dad, the kingdom of God is bringing that kind of justice. They'd have these kinds of conversations back and forth, and there was no arrogance on his part. There was no judgment on his part. It was just, dad, you have the right idea. You're just not going about it the right way. Here's how you can get it. By the time this guy was on his literal deathbed, he was ready to believe. He was ready to give his heart to Jesus, and he did. He came to know Christ. Why? Because his son stayed by the cross. He didn't veer off into religion. He didn't veer off into arrogance. He stayed by the cross and said, I'm just a sinner like you, Dad. You want the same things I do. Please come to the place where I've found it. And what we've got to do whether you're a, 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 an arrogant Christian or a, a friendly unbeliever or an anti-religionist, what you need is, is the God who is modest, who is, who is immodest enough to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So come. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Going to the cross to prepare a place for you. Come.